right, New Live East, how are you this morning? Good, if this is your first time with us, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the, uh, I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to have you with us. Uh, two things real quick. Uh, one is, as you can see, uh, we're pretty full in here already. So if you missed the announcement last week, we announced that on launch Sunday, which is, you know when it is? That's right, Super Bowl Sunday. So uh, we'll have one more preview service, and that's next week. And then we'll be officially launched on Super Bowl Sunday. We're going to launch with two services, okay? So that's exciting. That'll create a lot of space for people to come and be part of our community. But that also means that we need more volunteers. So like Pastor Collins said, make sure to head to uh, Connect Central and you can sign up to be on a serve team. We would love to have you. Uh, also, uh, Barack and Ruth O'Cal. Barack, can you wave it? And Ruth, would you wave at Brother Barack, there we go. Give it up for Bar- Barack and Ruth O'Cal. So they're leading our prayer and intercession team. And so we want to have intercession going before the service and during the service and even after the service a little bit. So if you have a heart for prayer and intercession, please see them after the service and you can join that team. Just get an atmosphere of prayer going around here. Okay, we're in a series called First Things. First Things, which is kind of a revisiting of the fundamentals of Christian faith. The first week we talked about the practice of reading Scripture. What does it look like to soak in Scripture and have Scripture get down deep into who we are and transform who we are. Last week we talked about the practice, the habit of church. And then this week I want to talk about the habit, the practice of generosity, generosity. So I'm going to be in Genesis 14. If you have Bibles, I'll give you a second. You can turn there. And then I'm going to weave a few texts together just to try to make the point that I want to make this morning. So Genesis chapter 14, before we get there, let's just pause and uh, open our hearts up to the Lord. I think it was Mother Teresa who said, if I could get a person to be quiet in a room with me for 15 minutes, I could convince them there's a God. Be still and know. Be still and know that I am God. And that's what we want to do this morning, Lord. Be still and know that you're God. That from you and through you and to you are all things, even if we aren't aware of it. That's always true. You're so near to us. You're so close to us. Teresa of Avila said that God is wherever, God is everywhere, and wherever God is, there is heaven. We just acknowledge that this morning, that you're everywhere, and you're here, and you're in us, and around us, and through us, and above us, and behind us, and beneath us. You're everywhere, and wherever you are, there is heaven. The kingdom of heaven has come to us. And so we pray that this morning would be Uh, not just singing songs and reading scriptures and doing a religious ritual, but we pray that this morning would be an encounter with the King of Heaven and that we'd find ourselves leaning into the kingdom of heaven more and more. Grant that, please, we're asking. We ask that the word as it is preached this morning, we're asking that Jesus Christ would be the word preached this morning. Jesus, that you would rise up strong inside these words, that you would tear down what you need to tear down, that you would destroy what you need to destroy, that you would overthrow what you need to overthrow, and then that you would build and plant what you need to build and plant, that you would make a garden out of us, a garden of resurrection, a garden for the kingdom. Grant that we're asking. We pray, may the words of our mouths this morning and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and everybody said... 
Genesis chapter 14, at that time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, and Ariah king of Elassar, and Kedor Laomer, touch seven people around you and say Kedor Laomer. There you go. King of Elam, yeah, lots of people here. King of Elam entitled King of Goyim, and these kings went to war against Bira king of Sodom and Beersheh king of Gomorrah and a bunch of other guys that are not real good guys. And the latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years they'd been subject to Keter Laomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. And in the 14th year, Keter Laomer and the kings allied with him, they went out and they defeated the Rephites. And oh my gosh, I went to seminary and this is hard. Ashtaroth, kind of the Zuzites and the Emites, and you get the picture. There's a whole battle that's brewing here, and the Horites and Alparan, and they turned back and they went to En Mishpat, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites are living in. Oh, my gosh. Help me, Jesus. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bila, that is Zor, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedarlaram, king of Ella, and Dido, king of Goyim, Amraphel. The king of Shinar area, king of Elassar, four kings, five. And now the valley of Sidon was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into the tar pits. It's such a bad day. I don't know a lot about that, but it sounds terrible, falling in the tar pits. And they did, and the rest fled to the hills. And the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. And they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So just a little bit of backstory. You know the story of Abram and Sarah. They're called out of the Ur, the Chaldees, right? And the Lord says, leave your land and your people and your father's household. Go into the place I will show you. I have good things in store for you, good things in front of you. And as Abram goes, at some point, there starts to be some quarreling between him and his nephew Lot over who gets what, okay? Now, when we think of Bible characters, we tend to think of like, when I think of Father Abraham, I think of an old guy with a beard kind of wandering around. And he's got a couple goats and some family with him. But that's not the situation. Actually, Abram was a very powerful guy. And Lot, his nephew, as Lot grew up, Lot also became rather powerful. And so at some point, they split. They went different directions. And it was okay. They did it in peace. And so Abram says, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. Just let there be peace between them. And there is. And eventually, Lot winds up in Sodom. Okay, in this city. And so when these kings conquer Sodom, they conquer Lot too. So now, all of a sudden, the family member, Abram, he's a little bit ticked off about that. He goes, da, 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 da. All right, now we might have had some quarreling with my upstart little nephew, Lot, but you don't just get to drag him away. So they carried off Lot and the possessions since he was living in Sodom. And a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol. This is a tough chapter in the Bible, I'm telling you. All of whom were allied with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men. 318 trained men, okay? So again, if you're like carrying around the idea of Abram, again, as like the old guy with the beard and he's got some, you know, he's got like a nice little tunic on or whatever and he's got a few goats and just get that out of your mind. Abram was like a really, really powerful guy. 300 and 18 trained men. We're talking about warriors here, okay? Abram has a small militia with them. This is, this is an army that he's got. And so he took them, the men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. And during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them. Okay, so there is this huge marauding army that has taken Lot captive and destroyed all these other kings and their cities. And this huge marauding army... And Abram goes, yeah, we're not doing that. And he rises up and he comes against the marauding army and he conquers them. During the night, he divided his men 
He attacked them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. And he recovered all the goods. And he brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Abram has just, and he was kind of minding his own business, right? So Abram isn't like looking for a fight, but he got drug into the fight. And all of a sudden this like, this victory happens and Abram suddenly establishes himself as the undisputed champion of the ancient Near East at that time. Abram is on top, on top of the dog pile, okay? And after Abram returned from defeating Keter Laomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And then, now get this picture, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was a priest of God most high, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And then, what does the text say? Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abram has established himself, again, as the undisputed champion of the ancient Near East at that time. And Melchizedek, this very shadowy figure, all of a sudden comes out and he's bringing forth bread and wine. And he sets them down and he blesses Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high. And blessed be God most high who has subdued your enemies underneath your feet. This priestly figure bestows blessing upon Abram. And what does Abram do? Abram offers him up a tenth of everything. The writer of Hebrews will later go on to say of Melchizedek that without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. So what Abram, who is the greatest one in this region, is doing is acknowledging that this priestly figure that we don't know very much about, that this priestly figure is greater in substance than he is and greater in power than he is. This mediatorial figure that stands between Abram and God Most High, Abram tacitly acknowledges in the tithe that Melchizedek is greater than he. Abram's tithe, I would say to Melchizedek, was an unmistakable way of saying, I live under your permission and under your blessing. See, the tithe communicates so much. And at a minimum, what it communicates is that. That this isn't just a sort of tax that I'm kind of paying. But it's a way of saying, I live under your permission and I live under your blessing. Without a doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the, the greater. That's just how it works. That's how the tithe always works. One of the most beautiful expressions of this comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26. If you have Bibles, you can flip there. This is Moses. Moses is recapitulating the law, he knows that he's getting ready to die. He's getting ready to pass into eternity with God. And he's getting ready to hand over the reins of the community. So Moses is saying all of the things again that he would want the community to hear. And he starts talking about the first fruits and the tithes. And he says this, that when you've entered the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession in it and settled in it, then you take some of the, the first fruits, the first fruits, so don't take what's left over. Don't take the worst part of what you have. Don't take the scraps. Don't take the crumbs. 
Don't take the coat that you've worn for three years and it's got holes in it, but you think, well, that'd be nice if God would have that coat, you know, give it to somebody. Don't take that, but you're going to take the, the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then what you're going to do is you're going to, I just want you to get this image, get this picture of what's happening here. You're going to take all of that and you're going to put it in a basket. And then you're going to go to the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling place for his name. And say to the priest in office at the time, I declare to you and to the Lord your God that I have come to the land that the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. And the priest shall take the basket from your hands and set it down in front of the altar of the Lord your God. And then you shall declare before the Lord your God, listen to these words, my father was a wandering Aramean. So do you get the picture here? Here's this individual in Israel who has taken land and settled it. They've begun to cultivate the ground and the ground, this ground that God has given them is producing fruit. It's producing a good harvest. And Moses says, you're going to take the first and the best and you're going to put it in a basket and you're going to give it to the priest. And the priest then is going to take that basket and they're going to present it to the Lord your God, laying it down, saying, Lord, here is the first fruits from one of the first fruits of humanity that you have redeemed. It's an offering unto the Lord. And this is what you're going to say, that my father was a wandering Aramean. In other words, God, I stand here already by your grace. I stand here already by your goodness. I stand here already by your permission, already by your favor. Like we were two-bit nothings. And you looked out for us. My father was a wandering Aramean and he went down into Egypt with a few people and he lived there and they became a great nation, powerful and numerous. Next slide. But the Egyptians mistreated us and they made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. And then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and he saw our misery and our toil and our oppression. So the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great terror and signs and wonders. And he brought us to this place and he gave us this land a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I'm bringing to you the first fruits of the soil that you, God, have given. Like I didn't just come and conquer this on my own. And I didn't just make this happen on my own. And this just wasn't my own blood, sweat, and tears and me pulling myself up by my bootstraps and making a name. It wasn't that. This is the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given to me. And then you're going to place the basket before the Lord your God and you're going to bow down before him in gratitude and thanksgiving in worship for how your God has been kind to you. And then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things the Lord has given to you in your household. In other words, you're going to throw a party Everybody's going to say, look, God was kind. God was merciful. God was gracious. Thanks be to God, who with his righteous right hand and his holy arm has delivered us out of Egypt. Now, we've got a problem with this in America. Because in America, our narrative is the narrative of people that got it done. We made it happen. You know, we were living in another country somewhere and life was kind of tough there. So we got on a boat and we came over to this country 
And we didn't have hardly anything, but we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and we worked hard. We worked our fingers to the bone and we got it done. And everything that we've got, therefore, belongs to us. And nobody, I don't owe anybody anything, right? It's kind of like the American mentality, the American way. And and what the Bible wants us to understand is that hard work is good and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is good. And ingenuity is good and working hard is good and working your fingers to the bone is good. But it wants us to situate that inside of a greater narrative. That it's situated inside of the narrative of how God has been good to us. Elsewhere in Deuteronomy, the Lord says to the people, when you get into the land and you've eaten and you're satisfied, be sure that you do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, who gives man his hands to work? Who gives man his feet to go do things? Who gives man his ingenuity and his creativity and his drive? Who gives to us the resources and the opportunities? Who's the one who does that? And the people of God are enjoying consistently to remember that God does that. And so what we do is just like Abraham with Melchizedek, we bring our gifts and we bring our offerings and we lay them down before the Lord. And we say to God, God, our fathers and our mothers, they were wandering Arameans. They didn't have nothing. And you were kind to them and you were kind to us. And we only ever, always exist by your grace and by your kindness. We don't just occasionally bump into it. But the scripture says that in God, we live and we move and we have our being. Do you understand that what that means is that the kindness of God is our total environment. There's never a moment when we're not living by the mercy of God. There's never a moment when we're not living by the grace of God. Never a moment when we're not living, living by the permission and by the blessing of God. The Melchizedek figure that is Jesus Christ is always standing over us and blessing us. And therefore unto him, we owe not just the portion of our lives, but what do we owe? The whole thing. The whole thing. So what we do is we take, I mean, this is the whole, Pastor Colin just a minute ago talking about baptisms on this coming Wednesday night. This is the whole meaning of our baptism is not that Jesus gets 10% of us. We don't find some way to carve out 10% of who we are and sort of throw it in the baptismal tank. But what goes in? The whole thing. That we're dead and we're buried with Jesus Christ and we're raised with him by the power of God so that our whole life belongs to Jesus Christ, not just the 10th, but the 100%. The writer of Hebrews says that in the same way, Christ didn't take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, you are my son, and today I have become your father. And he says in another place that you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Do you remember the story in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew, about how when the Christ child is born, magi from the east come to worship him. And what is the first thing that they do when they get to Jesus? They open up their treasures and they're giving it to this baby. Why? Because they recognize the one by whose permission and command and blessing they live. And when we gather for worship, it's always like that. That what we're doing is we're not saying, what can I get from God? But when we come into worship, when we come into an encounter with God, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I want to give you more. All that I am and all that I have and all that I ever will be, it belongs to you. 
I've been buried with you and raised to new life. So I don't get to just arrest my life and keep it over here. And I'm not just going to give you a portion. I'm not just going to give you scraps. But the whole thing belongs to you. I don't have an independent existence outside of you. But in you I live and move and have my being. And you are the vine and I'm the branch. And so at every moment, God, I'm drawing life continually from you. And the only way that I live is by surrendering my life continually back to you. Don't you remember that was how Jesus himself said that he lived? That the Father gave being to Jesus. From eternity past to eternity future, God pours out his life and the result is Jesus. And do you know what Jesus does? Jesus, from eternity past to eternity future, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it is that ceaseless flow of giving and receiving, brothers and sisters, that is the life of the triune God. And when we come into an encounter with him, what we do is we get caught up in the vortex of that. That we go, that whole thing that's happening there, in fact... Some theologians have said that that process, the giving and the receiving of being and the self-donation that exists between the Father and the Son, the name that we give to that ceaseless flow of giving and receiving is the Holy Ghost. (laughs) Which is why the Holy Ghost is called the gift. And when we get filled with the gift of God that is the Holy Spirit, we begin to give ourselves yet again to God. See, the critical question when it comes to our tithing, our giving, our generosity, our stewardship, is not how much should I give. But the critical question is who? Who? And what is my relationship to him? And too many Christians get caught up in the how much. And when we get caught up in the how much, you know what happens to us? We become these sort of fastidious, overly anal, retentive Legalistic twits. Everybody's going to want to come to New Life East because we're calling people names up in here. That's what happens to us, remember? You know, we're dividing it all up and who gets what and we're penny pinching with God. What is the point of that? I remember sitting with a group of Christians one time, might have been high school, college. We were at a restaurant after church service. And uh, high-minded theological conversation began, as it does in restaurants after church services. And we started talking about the tithe, and what do you believe about the tithe, and where did it start, and what's, the, what's going on there, and is it a valid New Testament principle, and what does it teach in the New Testament, blah, blah, blah. And then somebody, I'll never forget, as long as I live, I will never forget this moment that somebody raised the very interesting question. Now, when it comes to the tithe, should I tithe off of the pre-tax or the post-tax amount. (laughs) And I remember, you know how it is sometimes with these conversations, you're just kind of caught up in the flow and you're in it. And then you have, if God is gracious to you, every once in a while you'll have those clairvoyant moments where you recognize manifest absurdity for what it is. And I remember thinking to myself, if this is not the most fantastic exercise in missing the point I've ever, I don't know what is. The pre-tax or the post-tax. What are we even talking about anymore? <laughs> you know? And you get Christians are always debating this. The tithe, is it a New Testament principle? And da-da-da, Pastor Daniel said on Friday night, I love this. He said, you know, when you hear Christians talk like this, he goes, I've never talked to a Christian that had some issues with the tithe that was ever concerned that God was asking them to give too little. In other words, Pastor, I'm just not sure if the tithe is a valid principle because I'd love to give 15%. But I just feel so limited and constrained by the 10%. Please liberate me. 
What happens when we start these theological debates about the tithes is that we're always trying to get ourselves off the hook. Is it okay for me to give 8%, 4%, 3%, 2%, 1%? Well, at the very beginning of the conversation, you've already taken yourself out of the spirit of it. The spirit of generosity. And it's like my wife and I, we've been married almost 20 years now. There is not, like we don't sit down and think about, now how much am I, don't sit down and go, now how much of my time should Mandy get? What's going to make her like really happy with me? That kind of legalism has no place in a relationship. I don't know whatever, whatever it takes to keep the flow of life and love and delight going. That's the Christian spirit of generosity. Is that we're not going, ah, 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 putting it on an Excel spreadsheet and trying to figure out just what will make God happy and make my conscience feel good. But we're throwing ourselves into the radicality of the gospel. That God in Christ took on a human body and poured out his life unto death. He loved us lavishly. He loved us extravagantly. He loved us generously. He loved in a way that held nothing back. And the scripture says that we love God because he loved us. That our love, when it's genuine, is rebound. It's response. And so God loves us with all that he has and all that he is. And we love God back with all that we are and all that we have. And we don't ask ourselves, how much do I need to give to get God off my back? But we say, how much could I realistically keep? Because you own it all. Everything belongs to you. Oh, Lord, my God. I think that sometimes when we ask that question, the how much should I give question rather than the who question, it shows how much we've been taken captive by the world. A recent New York Times article noted that, just get this, that 45% of Americans in a given year do not give a single dollar. 45% in a single year do not give a single dollar. 75% of Americans in a given year, 75% do not volunteer a single minute to any organization or entity outside themselves. 45% don't give anything, 75% don't volunteer anything. What is that? That's a hoarding of our lives. You know what I mean? Like that's a hoarding of our wealth, a hoarding of our lives, a hoarding of our possessions. And Jesus actually said that the single best way to lose your life is to what? To try to save it. That if you try to hold on to your life, if you try to hold on to your possessions, if you try to hold on to your goods, what will happen is it'll all leak away. You can't hang on to it. Jesus also said by the same token that the person who abandons their life, what happens? They save it. They keep it. Don't you understand? This is the whole process of life. This is what happens in life. Think of those of you that have children. What happens when you bring those children into the world? You're giving your life away to them. Literally and actually. You're giving your life away to them. And in the years that progress, what you do is you keep giving life to them. And you find that somehow in that process of giving life away, that it's joy for you. There are moments of sacrifice and hardship and heartache, but ultimately it's joy. And what happens with those kids? They give life away. That's an analog of the inner life of God. It's a picture into deep humanness. That we don't keep our lives. 
but we lose our lives. And when the Spirit touches us genuinely and deeply, it awakens in us a desire for this. Acts 2.42, listen to this description of the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And listen to this. All the believers were together and had... Nobody was working out their Excel spreadsheet. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, by the way. Do your Excel spreadsheet. Get your family's budget in order. Please and by all means. But don't miss the spirit of it. The spirit of this is that we're constantly holding our lives in our hands. Not just a basket of the first fruits, but a basket of the whole darn thing. My father was a wandering Aramean, oh God. And he went down and he lived in Egypt and he became a great nation, powerful. But the Egyptians oppressed us and mistreated us. And you delivered us. And now I'm bringing to you what you gave to me. I'm giving it all back. That's the spirit of it. All the believers were together and they had everything in common and they sold property and possessions to give to anybody who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. Extravagant generosity, brothers and sisters, is the chief mark of the presence of the Spirit in us. That we don't hold on to our lives. We give them away. And when the Spirit comes and fills us, do you know who the Spirit fills us with? Christ the Lord. Do you know that's the whole work of the Holy Spirit in us? That what the Spirit does is the Spirit perfects Jesus Christ in us. Completes Jesus Christ in us. So that the same life that Jesus Christ lived in the Gospels. A life that was a life of self-giving. A life that was a life of self-emptying. A life that was a life that was poured out for the sake of others. What happens is that when Jesus Christ is perfected and completed in us, we become a people that give ourselves away for the sake of others. We hold nothing back and we scorn the shame. For the joy set before us, we pour ourselves out for others. That's the whole point of this. And so we prepare our hearts for communion. I invite the worship team to come forward. I was reminded as I was preparing this this week of a fantastic story. This happened about a year and some change ago, a new life Friday night. Uh, There's a family that was walking through a really difficult time. And uh, his dad, five of his kids. And um, we were going through this thing. We were doing this thing as a church where we were trying to raise, the kids were trying to raise some money for a country in Central America to do some development type work there. Uh, the area had been hit pretty hard. And so we just thought that was a good place to focus. And so we're doing special offering for that. And it had a beautiful service that night. It was just gorgeous. And one of the little kids, one of his five kids, came up to me after the service, six or seven years old. And he goes, Pastor Andrew, he said, will you take this and put it in the offering? And I said, sure, buddy. And when, as I took the, on, the offering envelope, I could tell it, there was, it was just kind of crinkled up. And like, it was not money that was in there is what I'm saying. And I opened it up. And it was the bread that he'd been eating before the service. We used to put out, a Friday night, we would put out a table of bread for anybody just to come, bread and donuts and just goodies, all this stuff. And this family at that time actually kind of depended in some ways on that table. So he is filling his belly with the bread from that table. And his heart was moved by what he heard that morning. And so he took a hunk of his bread and stuck it in the offering envelope so that somebody else could eat. And I went, that's the gospel right there. 
that's the spirit of it right there. That it's not, what's my obligation? I guess it's to give this much pressure to but that we're moved with compassion, that we're moved with love, that we're moved with a desire to see healing come into the world.